1: The year is 2012, and may the pods be ever in your favor. The movie, The Hunger Games.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled. Unspooled. I am Paul Shear, joined as always by my film aficionado, my uh, critic to my fan, Amy Nicholson. Amy, how are you?
1: Oh, hello. I'm just lovely, Paul. What a lovely day it is to be talking film with
0: you. Oh, yes. We are going to get into it today on The Hunger Games. And you might be surprised. You might, Hunger Games? Why is this on Unspooled? Is this one of the best movies of all time? Well, I'm glad that you asked because every week, Amy and I, we talk about movies, films that are maybe the best or maybe just remembered that way. But films yes. that have
1: a major, major impact. And I feel like you cannot deny that The Hunger Games had a huge impact. We're talking launching a star, launching a franchise, perhaps launching a mindset.
0: I, and I also think that you can't deny movies with as many sequels as this like this is a phenomenon and even if it's not one of the best which we'll get into or maybe it is we'll see at the end we'll tell you uh it is something that is worth talking about because it does something across the board that a lot of movies don't do it's adult themes it's very different tonally yet it brings in like a four quadrant audience adults kids everyone alike really gravitated to not only the book but this first film
1: They did, including myself. I made lamb stew with prunes in anticipation of this film.
0: Oh my gosh! Uh, Wow, I don't know if I like that, but I'll I'll tell you this much: you know, you never saw the
1: Hunger Games cookbook. They had recipes for lamb with prunes.
0: It's (laughs) good,
1: bro. It's like a tajine. All right,
0: okay, I like a tajine. But Amy, before we get into this show, quick question: What would be your strategy in the Hunger Games? As
1: the uh, other people call it, oh, mine's really easy. They do the countdown hopefully they don't mess up the numbers like they do in this movie where they kind of mm-hmm. stumble over the number 23.
0: 28, 27, 26, 25, 24,
1: 23, 22. I mean, how demeaning to hear somebody trip over numbers while you're about to die. And then as soon as they got to zero, I would run straight into the center of the cornucopia and die as soon as possible because I, there's just no way I can handle this. What's the point? Why slowly get tortured? Take me now.
0: Well, here's the thing. Katniss does something that I would have done, which is like just kind of hang out in the back. (laughs) But then they start a fire and they push her forward. And I feel like this is what I don't like about the Hunger Games is they're constantly messing with you. Those dogs, like those dogs shouldn't be a part of the game. I'm I'm fighting kids. But, um, uh, you know, what I would do is uh, I think I would do the survivor style. I'd form an alliance and then uh, try to build on that alliance and then uh, kill them all in their sleep.
1: Wow, you really believe that you're likable and duplicitous. I mean, you've announced (laughs) that now. Nobody's going to join your alliance, Richard
0: Hatch. No, (laughs) no. He wasn't likable, though. Uh, (laughs) All right. Has anybody ever
1: shaped the culture of America as much as Richard Hatch, the first survivor? I didn't even know, like, you could form an alliance. Like, he just blew the water off. He was like, ta-da. What if we were sneaky and it wasn't all about skill? If he had played survivor straight and it had been all skilled, no alliances... Would we live in a more honest society today?
0: Would there be 45 seasons of Survivor, which I've watched a ton of? (laughs) Um, I don't know. But I think this is interesting to talk about because reality TV is such a part of our lives. It's been something that has been on camera, in films, the subject of so many uh, pieces of entertainment. But I think that this movie lets that be our entry point, but it doesn't just exist in reality TV is bad. I think it has a much bigger purpose. And I think that the only person that really could direct this was Gary Ross. And we'll talk about kind of his filmography and how he got here. And also how the studio didn't believe that this movie could actually be a success. Um, this is a, a giant juggernaut of a book, but the studio still was afraid to pull the trigger. Thankfully, it worked out. But we'll talk about those concessions that they needed to make to make a movie that probably should have cost $200 million for about seventy nine.
1: And we have to talk about how people didn't believe that Jennifer Lawrence could be the star of this movie, which now looking back on her career, and Lord only even knows how many Oscar nominations she has. How many Oscar nominations does Jennifer Lawrence have?
0: Definitely more than one.
1: <laughs> definitely more than two.
0: All right, there we go. Again, this is not a show where we're going to get into the deep research, but we're going to just guess. And we know that it was definitely more than two.
1: four. Four Oscar four. nominations. Wow. Four Oscar nominations.
0: Well, I, I, I'm really fascinated by the culture here. This is also, you know, a part that was highly contested with all the great actresses of our time. It spun out a lot of bad franchises. But the truth is, there's only one Hunger Games. And now it is time for us to unspool it. The year is 2012, and people are hungry. Four. Yes, you guessed it—the Hunger Games. Susan Collins' original dystopian YA novel was the most downloaded Kindle book ever uh, at the time. Until anyone want to take a guess here, at what the next one is? Anyone at all? Amy. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey,
1: of course.
0: You got to do it. You got to get that on the Kindle because it's embarrassing to read out in the public. It's the way I read comic books. But I will say, I think that part of the reason why Hunger Games was so successful because a lot of adults read it too. And I don't think they want to be seen reading a kid's book.
1: That's interesting. I mean, I'm in Smut Club where we only read ridiculous smut about like gargoyles and stuff. And I I only read that on Kindle because Lord Almighty, am I not holding that book in public.
0: Hunger Games is immediately greenlit into a movie and every bit of gossip from the set is subject to hype and scrutiny, but none more than the casting of its lead, Jennifer Lawrence, a 20-year-old, still mostly unknown actor from Kentucky who had been nominated for a Best Actress Oscar in the $2 million drama Winter's Bone, which really no one saw. Like, It was a great film. She's fantastic in it, but it wasn't even one of those indie films that took the world by storm. She just rose because she was so good at it.
1: It's true. And don't worry, Jennifer, you're going to win that Oscar this year, the year that Hunger Games comes out for the Silver Linings playbook, you know, and that will happen after the Hunger Games launches you into major stardom. But all of that is to come. So the word on the Internet right before release is that this Jennifer Lawrence girl is all wrong for the part of Katniss Everdeen. And anybody who was on film Twitter back then, you remember that
0: war. This is peak Twitter. Katniss Everdeen is a poor, rural, 16-year-old girl who's forced to fight for her life in the Hunger Games, an annual televised bloodbath between 24 teens that is designed to amuse the rich residents of the capital, who have not forgiven the outside 12 districts for rebelling against them 74 years ago. Only one child can survive, so Katniss is not interested in befriending anyone, especially not Peeta Mellark, her other contender from her district, District 12, and there's no way they both can get home alive. Peeta is Josh Hutcherson, her coaches Effie, Hamich, and Cinna are played by Elizabeth Banks, Woody Harrelson, and Lenny Kravitz. They are varying degrees of helpful, and ruling over all of them are Wes Bentley's Seneca Crane, the designer of this year's game, and Donald Sutherland's President Snow, who's getting his own prequel this month with The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes.
1: The Hunger Games was released on March twenty third, 2012. and became surprise, a massive hit that sold more than 50 million tickets in the United States alone, and then went on to make $695 million around the globe. Jennifer Lawrence, she will go on to start in three other sequels, Catching Fire, Mockingjay Part 1, Mockingjay Part 2, and those chart how Katniss becomes the face of a new rebellion against the Capitol. So what was in the zeitgeist that weekend? It is a perfect anthem. It is about youth Setting the world on fire and carrying each other back home. It is fun, and we are young. (laughs)
0: I I do. I do remember that song. Yes.
1: I never knew that band was named Fun. But yes.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think we've been inundated up until now with Harry Potter and fantasy and fun and big. But The Hunger Games, the book, brings in this idea of a dystopian future. We also have Game of Thrones premiering the year before this movie comes out. We have movies like Maze Runner and Divergent. This idea right, trying that to bring
1: back Ender's Game there's so yes, much doom and
0: gloom. It's a darker world for teens. And I think that that is a really interesting moment in our culture here because up until this point it was more fun, more fantastical. So I in know in many ways that song represents the old and Hunger Games represents the new. And and I'll be honest with you when we this. I was like, uh, should we be doing Hunger Games? Is it one of the best movies of all time? And I really was like dragging my feet to watch it. And on this rewatch, I kind of was blown away by it. And I think a lot of it has to do with Gary Ross and the way that this movie is directed. It is more brutal than I remember. It is more visceral. Not to say there are not major things that I have issues with in this film, but it was more elevated than I remember it being, and I think I'm kind of doing the Shrek of it, which is like remembering the sum total of its parts instead of the individual pieces.
1: Okay, that's interesting. I'm excited to jump into this because I remember downloading the first Hunger Games on Kindle at maybe 7 p.m. one night, and then finishing it. I'm like, a, I'm a speed reader. I have terrible retention, but I read really fast. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And then buying like the next book in the trilogy at like midnight and then buying the last book in the trilogy at like 4 a.m. and just marathoning this entire
0: se- like series. You came to it late. I was reading it in real time. Oh,
1: yeah. I'm late to everything.
0: Okay. I read Hunger Games, Hungry Games. I read that. Hunger Games? At- Hungry Games. I call it Hungry, Hungry Games? Games. Hungry Games. Just Hungry. <laughs> uh, I read Hungry Games and was immediately just like, wow, this is great. It's one of those... YA books that kind of transcends YA culture. It becomes one of those books like everybody is reading it. And I remember watching it kind of fall off because everyone was so excited for the sequel to Hunger Games, uh, the book, and be like, yeah, um, it's okay. And then the third one comes and you're like, oh, uh-huh. It, it lost its... Theme, it's thread, it's spine. I think the movies reflect that as well. Um, this is a really good entry point, but I feel like it just kind of loses its way. But I don't want to talk about the whole series. Well, no. but, I mean, but yeah. I want
1: to disagree with you. Really <laughs> disagree with you. Give me a second to disagree with you. I think it gets stronger and stronger. What? Because I absolutely have almost no tolerance for movies that are like this chosen young one steps forward and is amazing and starts this whole revolution and blah, 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 all the nonsense that's been going on since like Luke Skywalker and before. And to me, Hunger Games and like the deep ambivalence the series has about power, about being used by the system, about Katniss never feeling comfortable being the face for this rebellion and ultimately having to turn against the people who are using her for their own propaganda on her own side. The deep kind of like 1970s conspiracy cynicism of this book, I found so smart. And so I love the first one. I love the brutality. But I, I love the political landscape of this and that it's not a patronizing series where ta everything works out great because Katniss is just great. I love that Katniss is kind of a dick, honestly. Yes.
0: Yes. I agree with you. She's a dick. The world is complicated. I like the anti-Luke Skywalker journey that we're going on. But I feel like the books and the films just get wrapped up in battle sequences. And it goes further and further away from what i really responded to initially which was this character of katniss her journey her seeing this world where she is a pawn learning how to manipulate that world feeling uncomfortable with that world i feel like overall this movie included everything could kind of be shrunk together like it's it's bloated right? These are bloated stories, not as bloated as like the three movies of The Hobbit, but (laughs) it does feel like we are spending a lot of time to get to kind of a simple conclusion. Like that's where as a reader and as a viewer, I just am like, ah, I'm over Hunger Games. I don't even know if I'm into seeing this new Hunger Games because I'm like- I have seen the new Hunger Games. Let me know if you ever want spoilers. Oh, okay. Well, maybe we'll (laughs) talk about that towards the end. but watching this, I was like, wow, this does capture so much of what you just talked about. This idea of this imperfect hero, she's stepping up out of necessity. And I feel like there is just something incredibly unique about it. Yes, there's also this gender swap thing that's going on here, which I I also didn't even think about how that reverberates throughout our culture, but there's a lot here that I feel like is incredibly grounded, and it reminded me more of an indie movie than a giant Hollywood blockbuster.
1: I mean, it does have sort of an indie feel when you start watching it. I had kind of an issue re-watching this movie because I think at the time that I saw it in 2012, it wasn't that I liked the kind of like run-around shaky action camera stuff, but I had gotten accustomed to it because mm. there was so much chaotic camera work happening at that period. In here, the opening scenes of Hunger Games are shot so chaotically. Like, the camera's always like running around over here and like over here and blah, blah, blah. And everything's kind of chopping, 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 and everything's shaky. And I found it like really hard to watch. I mean, and starting just from the very beginning, when like it's not even necessarily as chaotic as like, hi, I'm Katniss and I'm volunteering to go die to save my sister's life, which deservedly is chaotic and sounds chaotic here.
0: Rem! No, no, no!
1: A volunteer as tribute. Uh, I believe we have a volunteer. It's the mayor. I need to get out of here. You need to get out of here. No. Go find mom. No. Prim, go find mom I know
0: No. So sorry.
1: No. Go find mom. No. Leave. No. 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 Please, go find no. <laughs> no. no.
0: no. Dramatic turn of events. We're no. in District Twelve.
1: I'm talking about just like even simple scenes. She's like, "Hello, it's me. I'm Katniss. I'm going hunting." And it's so difficult to keep my eyes on her
0: because of how it's just moving. You see, I thought that that kind of camera work actually made it feel less big budget to me. And the truth is, this movie, while it did have an $80 million budget, which seems like a lot, is really like one third of what a movie like this should have cost. And I think that these choices that they made were to cover up some of that loss of budget they had to do shaky cam they had to not show you everything because they didn't have everything at their disposal this wasn't a big hit the studio believed in it but they weren't quite sure i mean this is yeah
1: Lionsgate like, isn't in the business of like i make two hundred dollar movies two yes. hundred
0: thousand dollar movies they could make a two hundred i wish they should be in the
1: business of making two hundred dollar movies what would that be
0: oh that would be it'd be rough uh, <laughs> but two million dollar movies sure
1: Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mc Crispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
0: You know, you and I watch a lot of movies, but I could see where people are afraid of making this movie. It's about kids killing each other. I mean, that's it. There's no rebellion at the end of this movie. As a matter of fact, there's one scene in the film when a young girl is killed and Katniss performs like a makeshift memorial around her that the people in her district, the girl who died, they rise up for this moment. You get this like burst of like, you see them being upset, like that one of their own has been killed. That was something that was added for the movie. It wasn't in the book. And it kind of foreshadows like what Katniss will be to this society.
1: Yeah, because it's not even even that like Rue is getting killed. It's that somebody is treating her corpse with the sanctity that human life allows and kind of brings that humanity back in. Because everybody's kids are getting killed. Right now, like as we're doing this on Zoom, I am the tribute from District 6, a blonde girl with pigtails. I don't even know if we ever see her. I don't know if we've She even seen might have been
0: killed at the cornucopia.
1: <laughs> she was almost certainly killed at the cornucopia. I don't even know her name. These 24 kids who just, they do, as you're saying, get absolutely mowed down. Mowed down.
0: And we talked about this last week briefly. Like, this reminded me of Battle Royale, which was a movie where they put a bunch of students on an island and, like, I'm gonna mess up the plot, but basically the idea is the same, you know, yeah, only it's a very one survivor. Fun movie oh, I love Argentina. it.
1: Yeah. Oh, so good.
0: But I understand how a studio is like, I don't know if this is Harry Potter level blockbuster. So they don't give it its full funding. And as a matter of fact, they spend so much money on CGI to make this world big because they have to make it big, that there are more like special effects shots in this movie than in the animated film that uh, Gary Ross did before this. The amount of computer-generated imagery in this movie is wild. And, you know, they're cutting corners. Like Stanley Tucci's face is given a plastic surgery kind of look with tape. Like, they were trying to do so much here. And I think that's why, you know, the final sequence on that silver, whatever that is, that silver ship, the cornucopia ship, it just looks janky. It reminds me, in many respects of a john carpenter film it's john carpenter without any of the humor there's no fun in this so even doubly so it's a trickier movie because like at least in a movie like scream and like oh kids are getting killed but it's fun we know we're gonna kill the bad guy here it ends with yes these two people live and you get a glimpse that's the movie ends you get this glimpse of like oof and now this is their life this sucks this is a bummer of a movie
1: it is, but I find movies that are bummers like this to be so satisfying because oh, they're I love also it. like, they're like, did you think the world was kind of awful? It is. It is. It can be absolutely kind of awful. And the timing of this movie coming out is great because, I mean, I'm hearing you talk about this sea change in mood that was happening. And I think it really is true. I feel like, to me, this is around that time period where I felt like I had my own awakening of like, oh, our generation's just screwed Not even just screwed on the environment, like screwed financially. Like, I think it took me a long time to recognize our generations, the generations younger than the baby boomers were never going to catch up to our parents financially. Mm. And like, this is around that time when I realized it. You know, this movie comes out like four months, I think, after the end of Occupy Wall Street. Do you remember Occupy Wall Street?
0: Oh, of course I do, yeah. Where like a
1: bunch of people like took over Zuccotti Park in New York. We're just like, we need to draw attention to the fact that You know, there are the 99 versus the 1%, right? The 99% of the people who live in America versus the 1% who have like all of the money. This is when I really remember that conversation happening. Now I feel like talking about the 1% is like, yes, we're all kind of radicalized. We're all kind of angry. We all sort of know that the system is broken. But I don't think I realized how broken it was here. I remember people saying around this time, hey, there's going to be a time where being a billionaire is going to be considered uncool. It's going to be like, oh, you must be a bad person. And I remember reading that and thinking, really? That's hard to picture. That's hard to picture a time where we will associate being a billionaire with being a bad person. But this is, I think, when that switch happened. So for this movie to come out, to be all about like literally these districts, these like suppressed people supporting the 1% by getting murdered by them all the time for entertainment, it feels like it was right on the crest of that wave.
0: There is so much that this movie is saying. And I think, you know, when you talk about this idea of, income inequality. It's something that this generation is going to feel more than anyone else. And there's an anger there. And I think we all like we all feel we're getting the short end of the stick. You know, I see it from my perspective. And I can only imagine what it feels like beneath that. And I think this is a really dense subject to talk about in a YA film. We're also talking about war. You know, I can't put everything through the lens of post 9/11 but this idea of this war that we didn't need to have happen right people died recklessly and you know Susan Collins wrote this in a way to reflect her dad's experience in in the war that he fought in but we haven't talked about the inequalities of war since Vietnam right this is a different kind of a thing it's 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 interesting that we're we're talking about a movie like platoon it's a YA movie, and it, it. but there are a lot of similarities between these two.
1: Yeah, there really are. And I mean, in Platoon, there could at least be like the pretense that all kids in America were getting drafted equally, quote unquote, but that was never true. I mean, we know that from like the story of like George W. Bush having bone spurs, like kids who were rich and had connections didn't have to go to Vietnam. No. But then we really saw how income inequality played into the wars on terror. You know, and like how the sons of the rich weren't going at all. And I remember like the government saying like, hey, like off making offers to like people from Mexico. Like if you come fight for us in Iraq, then we'll let you be citizens. And it just feeling that feeling so dystopian, like like they're just kind of declaring that certain lives are more able to be cannon fodder than others and finding it absolutely so depressing. So it makes sense to me that Suzanne Collins is like flipping through TV one night and she's like watching war footage And then also flipping and finding reality TV where like people are competing for a million dollars and then going back to the Iraq war and then going back to reality TV and kind of fusing these things together.
0: I want to talk about reality TV in one second. I just also want to just draw one line here too. The entire reason why Donald Sutherland is in this movie, this script found its way to him. It said he accidentally read the script. I don't know what that means, accidentally read the script, but he read the script. Oops, Um, I fell into this script. Yes. (laughs) When he read it, he was like, oh my God, this reminds me of Kubrick's Paths of Glory, which is this 1957 American anti-war film that Kubrick wrote. It's one of the ones that I don't think most people think of when they think about Stanley Kubrick, but it stars Kirk Douglas. And he is a commanding officer of French soldiers who refused to continue a suicidal attack. And then he's like court-martialed. That's the very short version of it. But I love that that's what he saw in it. He was like, oh my gosh, this this could be very powerful. And he he wrote this note to Gary Ross. And Gary Ross is like, not only do I love this take, but I'm gonna actually write more scenes for President Snow in this movie. And Suzanne Collins is working with Gary and Billy Ray to get this script together, but they're they're kind of blowing out this world a little bit. They're kind of showing things that the book doesn't show, they're showing different perspectives of it. They actually are able to illuminate the reality a little bit better because the game maker, the Seneca, not in the first book, is a pivotal person in this story. Like he's on TV talking about this amazing event that he's creating. It is a beautiful like condemnation of reality television. Like we just we get our favorites and we root for them and we want some people to win and some people to lose. I get like that with Survivor. But I also think more than reality TV, this movie is the story of Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah. Of Hollywood fame, right? Fame in every single sense of the word. Here's this actress. She's doing a $2 million indie film, which I would argue Winter's Bone, the main character of Ree, I believe her name was not that, is very similar to her character in Hunger Games. Like, here's this actress who is kind of plucked from obscurity and put into this million-dollar franchise, dressed up, presented put out into the world, and then has to work within this world. I mean, this is a story of the Hollywood star machine, even more than it is about reality TV. Yes, audiences get invested in characters, but I don't think that we even see that much of that in this film, as much as we understand, like, all the compromises one has to make to be put on a public stage. Or at least that's why I couldn't get that out of my head when I was watching it.
1: No, I think that's exactly true. I had the same thought and I tried to pull two clips. that I almost thought illustrated it. Okay. So, you know, here when Katniss gets selected to go to the Capitol, volunteers to go to the Capitol, she has to talk on television, has to kind of figure out how to be like, hello, make people like me, I suppose. And she's not very good at it. And she's very awkward. And they keep telling her just to be herself. You know, this is her with Stanley Tucci, like on screen. What? I think someone's a little nervous. (laughs) I said that was quite an entrance that you made at the tributes parade the other day. Do you want to tell us about it? Well, I was just hoping that I wouldn't burn to death. (laughs) And so I was like, okay, well, I need to see what Jennifer Lawrence was like when she wasn't Katniss before this, when she was on, like, Jimmy Fallon for the very first time in 2010 because she's, like, doing... The winter's bone publicity tour and she is almost exactly the same person you can hear in this clip she comes out she starts heading the wrong direction she can't figure out what camera to look at and she's just nervous and charming at the same time <laughs>
0: To, yeah, you almost walked go, over yeah. to the roots. Questlove, <laughs> you almost had to interview another I one of our I saw
1: Trombone, I was like, well, this is my <laughs> Yeah, idea. Yeah,
0: that's what happens, yeah. <laughs> hey, are you excited? You're, the reviews are insane. You're getting prizes from Sundance Film Festival, little Oscar buzz. It's know. getting crazy. It's crazy. Are you enjoying it? No. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you hate it. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's
0: great. So, this movie is Winter's Bone. It's just a great performance. Fantastic. Oh, thank you. Uh, do you want to tell everyone what, is, what it's about? Like.
1: Um, it's about, do I look, Hey everybody. Um, it's about- I mean, then I was thinking, you know, we've had some time now to settle into like the Jennifer Lawrence persona. Yeah, This is coming out yeah. right before she's going to win for Silver Linings playbook and like trip on her way up the stairs to get her Oscar. This is kind of her whole thing that I think she settles into really comfortably. The way to deal with fame is to be yourself. Let it be awkward if it is admit your flubs trip on things and trust that people will love you even if you're not perfect
0: what's interesting about her is yes she has this meteoric rise you know this movie comes out in 2012 she takes a break from acting in 2019 she's like i'm done i have to take a break i need to retire a little bit right um and she comes back but you know you look at her company name you know what her production company name is no excellent cadaver
1: excellent cadaver
0: Yes. uh, It refers to illustrious corpses, like high-profile victims of the mafia, such as politicians, judges, and police chiefs. Maybe I'm reading into this way too much, but does she view herself as like just a body? We can pick it apart any which way we want, but I thought that was an interesting name to name her production company. Well, it's interesting because
1: here, half of why a lot of people were upset at her casting was just her body was just her literal physical body. I mean, this is her talking about it like with the retrospective of some years. In Hunger Games was was an awesome responsibility, it felt like. I mean, it was those books were huge and I knew that the audience was children um, and, and this hero. And there were so many different opinions, you know, on what is this, basically this action figure for, for children going to look like. I remember the, the biggest conversation, of course, this was pre me too. And I'm a woman. So it was weight. And you know, how much weight are you going to lose? Well, it's called the hunger games and you wouldn't be. Yeah. And like the common theme was, this is a movie called the hunger games. She doesn't look hungry enough. She doesn't look skinny enough. She doesn't look thin enough. You know, she's got like soft cheeks and people were just like analyzing her lovely, incredibly fit body and being like too big which can you imagine being 20 years old and all of film Twitter is like, I wish you looked a little more anorexic.
0: I think that Gary Ross does something really interesting with the camera here. Katniss in the book is 16. They make her 17 for the movie. She's 20 when she's actually making the movie. But there are moments in this movie where he captures her face and she looks like a child. And I found those moments to be Chilling, And I think that he uses that sparingly in these moments of desperation because you watch her be so capable with her sister taking care of really everything. She seems with it. I think that she holds this emotional truth of her surroundings. Like I buy her as this character. I'm not looking at her weight. I'm not looking at anything. But I think what she's able to capture is this person in between teen and adult really, really well. That look that only a younger teen would have, a 17-year-old, an 18-year-old, like faces change as you get into your 20s, right? I feel like she was able to kind of still have some of that young face that you can't, it's not through makeup, it's not through anything, it's just like a younger face, but she also was able to carry and look like somebody who had been through it. You know, you're never going to capture the person exactly the way that you envisioned it because you see Katniss different than I see Katniss. But I do feel like in this movie, in particular, there's a rawness to her that is incredibly unique that allows her to get painted up, that allows her to, you know, to be in this kind of handheld world in the beginning when we meet her, and then to see her truly struggle out in the Hunger Games. I I, I think that. The way that she plays, and I think a lot of people talk about that, like the way that she can kind of move through emotions is is pretty stunning.
1: Yeah. I mean, like Susan Collins has said, you know, quote, the actress who looks exactly like my book, Katniss, does not exist. But she really got into the vibe that I think Jennifer brought here, which to me, what I see is I see a young woman who is forced to kind of skip her childhood years in the first place. You know, what we kind of sense from her family is that her dad died in a mining accident when she was young. And that her mom just completely fell apart. And she's had to kind of be the mother for her entire family. She's had to mother Prim, and she's also kind of had to mother her mother. Like when she gives her last advice to the family right before she's like summoned away to go to the Capitol. And, you know, as a context, she's giving them this advice thinking she will never ever see her family again. She's probably going to die. Right. It's like she's giving them eternal advice. She's like basically telling Prim how to stay alive. And then she turns to her mom and she's just like, you cannot fuck this up again. Prim, I don't have much time. Prim, listen. You're going to be okay. Don't take any extra food from them. It isn't worth putting your name in more times. Okay, listen, Prim. Gail will bring you game. You can sell cheese from your goat. Just trying to win. Maybe you can. Of course. Maybe I can. I am smart, you know. You can hunt. Exactly. And so with that, like, yeah, She is 16 slash 17, but she doesn't have the life
0: experience of that. She has the life experience of somebody who's like lived a lot more. This movie is PG-13 and how it became PG-13, my God, the MPAA must have, I mean, there must have been so many strings pulled here because this is a violent movie. They obviously cut it. So it's not incredibly violent.
1: Yeah. You don't see a ton of blood. Like to me, that's one of my quibbles is I almost wish there was more... Visceral horror in the first Cornucopia call, where my my the woman that I am today, pigtails from District Six, dies. But to your point, exactly like Stephen King was one of the first people to review the book. Book like he reviewed it for Entertainment Weekly when the book came out in two thousand eight, right. which is of course very funny because he points out that the book has a lot of similarities to The Running Man and The Long Walk by some guy named Bachman, uh. which they do. It really does. It really does. And he described Katniss as quote lame name. Cool kid, but once I got over her name, I got to like her a lot. He ends his review with exactly what you're saying. He said, "Quote: Let's see the makers of the movie version try to get a PG thirteen on this baby,
0: and they did. And they, they did. did. And look, they yeah. cut out a bunch of stuff that was different. Like, I mean, Peta loses a leg in the book, right? That got to be amputated and replaced with a prosthetic. You know, like at the end, the suicide trick at the end. That also, I mean, look, it's very Romeo and Juliet, right? It's I feel like the book leans more towards they actually are going to do it. But in the movie, it's kind of like, trust me, like she's got a trick up her sleeve, which I don't know what that is. Yeah,
1: they do like a tiny thing with like her eye contact where he's looking at the berries like we're about to die. And she's looking at the camera
0: like you're watching this,
1: right? Yeah. The book, I think, has a little bit more. It's more vocal about her ambiguity in ways that I like. Does PETA like me? Is he just pretending to like me? Do I have to pretend to like him? It's more vocal about the inward part of the psychology part of The Hunger Games, which is in here, but it's kind of my favorite part of the book because like this is basically a story about someone becoming an influencer before we even use the word influencer. It's about a person who is literally surviving off of likes. If you like her, she will survive, you know? Except it's not about like being a phony influencer. It's about like trying to figure out how to be an honest influencer.
0: Well, I think that she's wrestling with that the entire time, but she understands that her survival is based on feeding pita soup, like playing up for the camera.
1: Exactly like what Haymitch says here.
0: You really want to know how to stay alive? You get people to like you. Oh, not what you were expecting. When you're in the middle of the games and you're starving or freezing, some water, a knife, or even some matches can mean the difference between life and death. And those things only come from sponsors. And to get sponsors, you have to make people like you. And right now, sweetheart, you're not off to a real good start. I think that just to go back to that Stephen King review as well, you know, when he talks about, oh, this is similar to The Running Man and stuff like that. Yes, even the movie like The Apple, which we talked about on How Did This Get Made, but... um, Oh, that's a good movie. Oh, I love it. Reality TV is always an interesting target. Series 7, Albert Brooks did Real Life, which was way ahead of its time. But commenting on reality TV, I think, is a very small part of this. It's about the compromises you make to be in the public eye. It is about wealth inequality. And it's through the lens of something relatable, reality TV, right? But reality TV, I I think, is like one sliver of a much bigger pie. And I think that's why this movie works. And I think that the idea, just to go back to this world that we're in, you know, I love the way this world looks, this post-apocalyptic You know, North America, right? There, there, there's elements of climate change here. The way that the the skyline looks, the way everything everything looks muted, it's like a filter has been put on it. There's a great way of capturing a vibe of we're in a fucked world without having to belabor that, right? I think that that's actually really done well here. It's not like we don't get that much of the world. We understand it. Like we have these districts, each district is responsible for different things that manufacture for our main district. And I was looking into the origins of some of these terms, but um, Panem, right? Uh, that's the name of the place that they're from, is derived from this Latin term of bread and circuses. Uh, you know, the later days of the Roman Empire had this, you know, it's like they kept the masses satisfied with cheap food and popular entertainment. Reality TV is... Our gladiatorial arena, if you will. Like, that's our new gladiatorial arena. Like, we're not watching people literally get killed, but we are voting people off. We are banishing people. We are, you know, we are kicking people out of the house, all, whatever it is, right? We're making them lose. And I think from the beginning of time, we've, we are obsessed with the everyman of that. And we also want to watch the losses to make ourselves feel better. And I like this idea that. At our core, we go back to the roots of society, which is just like feed them something that will like pump their ego and they won't notice all the shit going on around them. I mean, there's that show on right now called Naked Attraction where they just lift up a screen and you see people's vaginas and penises and people are like, "Mm -hmm, I like that penis, but I I like more hairier balls. Okay, great. How about this one? Okay, yeah, that penis is fine or that vulva is too big. And you're like, that's TV? you that's know but Stevie, yes
1: that's what that show is oh, oh God, yeah I didn't <laughs>
0: whoa oh yeah and then and then it goes from up from the penis to up to the neck and then you see from the neck down and then they judge from that and then it goes finally to the head fully whoa. naked fully naked and there's no blurring there's no anything i mean that's there's also a bbc show called sex box where people get into a box they have sex and they come out and they talk to like a therapist and other people and they talk about like what they did in the sex box
1: i'm i'm, I'm absorbing all of this this is a lot to absorb I mean, one of the scenes they added here that that Donald Sutherland inspired Gary Ross to add after he sent him this whole letter that you've been talking about, about like what he thought Coralina Snow had to be. He said that in the original script, Snow had maybe like one or two sentences. And because of Donald Sutherland kind of advocating like what he thinks this character adds to the story, this idea of like being complacent, confident, still, that power that you get from his stillness. One of the scenes that then Gary Ross wrote was this one that they're having... It's like him and Seneca Crane love in scene. the Rose Garden, right after they're realizing that this Katniss girl is going to give them way too much trouble. They don't like how this is going. She's already starting the Rebellion in 11. They're having this fight over, like, what do people want to watch? And Seneca Crane says, people want to watch underdogs. And President Snow is like, no, they don't. So you like an underdog. Everyone likes an underdog. I don't. Have you been out there? 10, 11, 12? Uh, not personally, no. And I have. Lots of underdogs. Lots of coal, too. Row crops, minerals. Things we need.
0: There are lots of underdogs. And I think if you could see them, you would not root for them either.
1: I mean, do you think people don't like underdogs? Is Like, is snow right? Or is snow just... I like watching the major people win.
0: No, I think what Snow is saying in that moment is you don't understand. Underdogs are dangerous to the position of power that he has. I think that Seneca is right from a storytelling and gamesmanship point of view. But what I feel like the president is acknowledging is we don't need another rebellion. He's saying the thing that you're not supposed to say out loud, right? We can't afford to have somebody rallying the people this much.
1: In a way, I feel like they extrapolated from that scene everything that's going to go into Songbirds and Snakes. And it also makes me think, like, the week before this movie comes out, even, like, Occupy Wall Street tries to, like, reoccupy Zuccotti Park and 70 people get arrested because of it. And then the weekend that this comes out, hundreds more people, like, marched against the police violence when the police arrested the protesters the week before and they all got arrested. That movement... The thing it tried to do was to not have a leader, to be like the 99% signet for the 99% without any sort of cult of personality building around it. And this movie is sort of like, yes, but you're going to kind of need to have a face. I mean, in a way, there's like a, a parallel here between Katniss and Tyler Durden, you know, or Edward Norton's idea of being Tyler Durden, that it's about somebody becoming a leader when they're not comfortable being that position. And are they going to blow it up? And everybody wants them to blow it up. And how do they feel about blowing it up?
0: I think that there is a theme in everything that Gary Ross has done, in a way. And let's, like, go down this route, because I do think that it kind of ties into what you're saying here. So he wrote Big, Dave and Pleasantville, right? These are all people that are seeing both sides of a world. Like Dave is, you know, about Hmm. the president has a heart attack. They replace him with a guy who looks like the president and he's a nice, normal guy. Then he sees like, oh my gosh, this nice president I like is actually doing some bad shit. Big. I'm a kid. I just want to like toys. I want to have good ideas. And then he sees like, oh, well, I can't get my good ideas through because it's not about just good ideas. It's about this inner fighting, right? And then you could talk about Pleasantville, about we live in this perfect world of the 1950s and everything looks great on one side, but I'm bringing in color and that actually upsets the world. And each one of those characters is wrestling with this weight of being plucked from one world and being placed in this new world and not understanding how to navigate. I I think that there's something about, I thought that good gets ahead. I thought that what I was told, you know, if I act the right way, it works. And basically he has a lot of these movies that are, I think, very cynical of society in a way, but they're kind of coded in this way that they're like, oh my gosh, this is so fun. These are such fun movies, but they do have a dark core at the center of them.
1: I love that you're pointing out that like Gary Ross's movies share in common, a little bit of like idealism punctured. Although, yes. even as I say that, I'm like, Katniss herself is not idealistic in the slightest.
0: Right. She's you know? aware of it, but I guess she gets to see both sides of it, right? Like, yeah. so she comes, like, it's almost like the reverse of big. Like, she comes in going, fuck this world, but then has to say, if I want to live, if I want to make this place better, I have to do these things. I have to play the game. I have to give them what they want because that gives me power. Right, it's 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 a different way in. It's just the flipped right. version of it. It's almost isn't it worse if you're if you're cynical and you have to compromise? Like you know, it's even worse. <laughs> like at least like a naive person is like, oh my gosh, I've never had to compromise before. But here, knowing like I had, I do stand for something, <laughs> and I got to yeah. fucking compromise. It's worse. It's there. It's it's tough.
1: No, you're right. Like that, the the way that the movie ends, that kind of chilling, chilling, Oof. chilling. Hey, Mitch, warning. You know, first he warns her that like. She survived. Not going to be a happy ending that they both survived. She has to look out. She has to watch her back. Not happy with you. Why? Because I didn't die? Because you showed them up. Well, oh. I'm sorry it didn't go the way they planned. You know, I'm not very happy with Emmy. Candace, this is serious. Not just for you. They don't take these things lightly. And then that kind of rolling into an ending that almost feels like the ending of The Dark Knight to me, like, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have to be on the run and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Except what she has to do is she has to pretend to be in love with Peter for the next several films if she wants to try to, like, not just herself stay alive, but everybody she cares about stay alive. She has to be in this fake relationship that here, to her at this moment, I think feels pretty fake.
0: You say you couldn't help yourself. You, you were so in love with this boy that the thought of not being them was unthinkable you you'd rather die than not be with him you understand how did you feel when you found him by that river
1: i felt like the happiest person in the world i couldn't imagine life without him that's one of the things I struggle with with this movie just a little bit is like I love the idea of her having to wind up in a fake relationship and maybe I'm bringing too much of my love of the book into this or my respect for the book but I don't always feel like I feel her emotional dilemma here because I was thinking as I was watching the Hunger Games settling in I was like here we go the love triangle between Gail and PETA are you a Gail are you a PETA are you team Gail team PETA then when you re-watch Hunger Games the first one you're like Oh, Gail's not even really in here at all. It doesn't matter. Like, you don't feel the love triangle in this point. She's not really talking about him or thinking about him. He's got, like, two scenes. And in both of them, he's pretty smart. You know, he's like, hey, what if we just stopped watching these games? Would that do anything?
0: What if they did? Just one year. What if everyone just stopped watching? They won't, Gail. What if they did? What if we did? Won't happen. You root for your favorites. You cry when they get killed. It's sick. Gail. If no one watches... And they don't have a game. It's as simple as that. What? Nothing. Fine, laugh at
1: me. I'm you. not laughing at you. And then the other thing he's, he shows up is he's the one who kind of, I think, gives her the advice of how to survive. So Gail is a pretty, I would say Gail is actually kind of with it
0: here. They just want a good show. That's all they want. If they don't have a bow, then you make one, okay? You know how to hunt. Animals. It's no different yet.
1: There's 24 of us, Gail. Only one comes out.
0: Yeah. And it's going to be you. Okay.
1: Take care of them, Gail. Whatever you do, don't let them starve.
0: Let's go. I'll see you soon, okay?
1: But what you don't feel after that is, like, her being pulled towards Gail, her, like, thinking about Gail, her feeling like if she's being close with PETA, is it going to betray Gail? And I think they try to get it in a little bit. You cut to his face here and there. He's watching it on TV. But I'm missing the emotional core of, like, Her wanting to get home to this one guy, but having to pretend she's in love with this other guy so that she can stay alive. I feel a little robbed of that.
0: Yeah, I think that this movie suffers in the sense that all great books, when they translate to screen, I think deal with. Which is, you can't really get into the character's mind as much as you'd like. I I think that they share a really interesting relationship in the beginning, you know, uh I like their vibe together, right? I don't know if they're like their
1: first conversation because it kind of yes. skips from one thing to another really naturally. They feel yes. like old friends.
0: I think it's tricky, right? She's in this world with PETA where she's A, she's got to do this to survive. It works. And then also just like when you've been through the shit with people, I mean I've been on, you know, projects where you just are like, oh thank God. Like there will always be a bond with somebody that you go through something really difficult with. I think it's missing some of that triangle, but I think for the simplicity of the movie, it's more interesting that she's kind of forced into this. I think there's only so many things you can communicate in a movie where the primary task is not this love story. Like the love story falls a little flat and it gets, I think it builds a little bit more as we go on. But I also think this is a movie that takes way too long to get to the Hunger Games. And I think it's a movie that takes too long in the actual Hunger Games. I think this movie is too long. It's two hours and 20 minutes. I don't think that the story or the spine of this requires that long of a film. I think that that'd be my biggest ding on this movie. Because they do so many other great things. Like, they cut out a lot of stuff. They don't over-explain. They don't go into every district. They don't go into, like, how does PETA look like he's uh, fucking the thing with his concrete face?
1: Oh, my God. We have to play that clip, can we? Because it just makes me
0: laugh. Oh my God, Peter. Peter. Hi. I want a whole Peter Face movie. (laughs) I, 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 I jumped when I was like, what the fuck? And then he's immediately ripped it off. I'm like, no, leave that on. I love it. I love the music is like, she's
1: looking for something and she's definitely looking for PETA disguised as a rock because she's not that surprised when she sees it. And then, I mean, at least if you don't have the whole reality show of PETA teaching you how to be the next great makeup influencer, we do have this Saturday Night Live skit that came out this year that like really takes up to task for that.
0: Uh, PETA, you got a leg injury on the second day and uh, then you decided to disguise yourself with paint to look like a rock. That's right. Now, when you did that, were you thinking, this is cool people at home are going to be really into this or were you thinking this stinks i stink at this what? well i mean there's more to the games than manly aggression or testosterone sometimes you have to use your guile and cunning to paint yourself like a rock i think he answered that question we can keep this moving Oh, that's so funny. I I guess it, this movie doesn't get lost in exposition. I think it gives you just enough to understand the world and you get it. And there's enough similarities to our own world. Like, everything's moving good. But I just feel like, do you feel that this movie has a little bit of a pace issue or something? I was like,
1: why? why is it an hour? It's way too long. It's way too long. And it's missing to me the most crucial element of the whole entire movie. It is called The Hunger Games. And yes, there was a lot of emphasis on like Jennifer Lawrence not looking hungry, but the movie is not helping this at all. Because part of my favorite thing of the book is all of these scenes where like, she's finally taken from District 12 where she's been starving and living on squirrels. And she's surrounded by food for the first time. And she is really into the Capitol's food. So into the Capitol's food. If you read that book, all you walk away with is thinking about how much she loves lamb stew. I mean, here's even just like, One little section from her talking about food. She's sitting down for a meal and she says, quote, Chicken and chunks of oranges cooked in a creamy sauce laid on a bed of pearly white grain. Tiny green peas and onions. Rolls shaped like flowers. And for dessert, a pudding the color of honey. I try to imagine assembling this meal back home. Chickens are too expensive, but I could make do with a wild turkey. I need to shoot a second turkey to trade for an orange. Goat's milk would have to substitute for cream. We can grow peas in the garden... I'd have to get wild onions from the woods. I don't recognize the grain. Our own Tessera ration cooks down to an unattractive brown bush. Fancy rolls would mean another trade with the baker, perhaps for two or three squirrels. For the pudding, I can't even guess what's in it. I mean, basically food in the novel is like American Psycho style, like paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs of food obsession. And she uses it as a way of kind of explaining like Katniss's inner conflict. It's like expressed through food. I've been starving to death. And now at least I'm surrounded by all this food and I'm going to eat their food. And I kind of hate myself for wanting to eat their food, but I've never had orange juice. I've never had hot chocolate. I'm still going to eat until I puke. I know I'm too skinny, but I hate accepting their generosity. And here, I don't know if she really eats anything. She's like looking at food. Like she walks under the train and there's like a little montage of all of the food. You hear just music Yeah, But then she doesn't eat any of it. And actually, when they're sitting down in front of food, she and PETA keep projecting food.
0: I'm not very
1: hungry. And that drives me nuts. Because to me, I want to feel that visceral starvation, that mindset that they're in. And I feel like that's just absolutely missing. Like, you're
0: missing how these districts have been pushed to the brink. I think that that's the hard thing to kind of... Like, these are all nuances that I think are really great and that nuances that you can kind of do in a book. But here we got to kind of draw some lines. I, I I don't I know, but
1: the title is the
0: Hunger Game. I get you. I get you.
1: I mean, you know what it should be like when they get on the train? It should be like this.
0: Joey looks to be a little bit ahead. I have never seen a this is going to be a big event, Paul. It's interesting that here at the start you're seeing some other names come in there. Chestnut now has four, Stony 3. We expect them to pull away quickly. Yeah.
1: Hot dog eating competitions. That is The Hunger Games. You put the name The Hunger Games on something, I'm going to expect to see, like, Kobayashi and Joey Chestnut shoving hot dogs down their face.
0: Right. Well, like, I guess, well, to me, it's like The Hunger Games, like, the place of all the weapons is a cornucopia, right? Like, it, to me, it's like you fatten them up, and then you let them fight. I get it. I get it. I mean, to me, it just sort of feels like, this is this is like a good fellow's argument to me. It's like, it's like yes, I guess they're they supposed to be hungry. I don't know if they're supposed to be what? hungry. All
1: of to be the hungry. Cakes? Can't she just eat a cake? Just let her eat a cake already. Yeah,
0: but I think it shows some more defiance when you can't hear her inner monologue, right? But I get it. She is hungry. breaking that
1: defiance. The breaking right. of that defiance is what makes her interesting. She has to break it for this, right? Yeah. What breaks Katniss, her hunger. Like, I find that beautiful. And I do appreciate that they bring the hunger into like the rest of the actual game, 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 games that people are starving and poor little fox faces eating the berries. I appreciate that during the actual battling they have to take time to stop to eat food and to sleep
0: yeah there's so much here to unpack and honestly i really do believe this movie is way better than i remember now you've seen all the other films as have i i remember just being like by the time we got to part two i was like done don't care out i was completely checked out i read all the books but I was completely checked out. And that was one of those, that's a time of that supersizing bullshit where it's like, we need to make two of these movies. It's like, it worked for Harry Potter because Harry Potter, those books were giant. There's enough plot to carry it. These books, I I go back to this numerous times. There's not that much plot there. Like Running Man is a novella, right? Isn't Running Man a novella? It is a
1: novella. And so is The Long Walk. I love The Long
0: Walk. I do too. It, like I feel like this movie imploded on itself by trying to become and follow in the footsteps of what else is going on. And this is like a problem sometimes. It's like, you know, you, you have this success, obviously. Like Dubai creates like a Hunger Games theme park, which is wild. But, you know, there's all this success and then you just kind of, you wreck it. And now they have a chance to kind of bring it back with this prequel. But I don't even know if I care about this prequel. Do I care about snow? Do you, should I care about snow? Give me a taste. Should I, without spoilers... Should I care about Snow?
1: Well, I do like the actor who plays Snow. Okay. I do like, because it is a prequel that takes place on the 10th Hunger Games, jumping all the way back, like 64 years, Mm -hmm. going back to a moment where the Capitol feels aggrieved still at the rebellion, you Mm -hmm. kind of get that sense of something I feel like we're feeling now, like endless cycles of conflict and one side being like, you started it and then you started it and then you started it. And like the blindness of Snow in the Capitol and not realizing their culpability and like why the re- districts are built in the first place. Like I actually really find the political intrigue really good. I will say the one ridiculous thing about the new Hunger Games, it takes a a long time to get over once it happens. You know, Rachel Ziegler plays like the new tribute from 12. She's in the yeah. Katniss role. And when she gets selected early on, that is absolutely not a spoiler. Obviously, she's selected early on to like be in the Hunger Games. The first thing she does is she walks up to the mic and she sings a song because, you know, she's Rachel Ziegler from like West Side Story. She grabs the mic and sings like kind of a soul bluesy song about her anger at being chosen for the Hunger Games and drops the mic. And every time she sings randomly like that, you're just like, what the fuck am I watching? (laughs) She sings like seven songs. Some of them are great towards the end, but you're just like, why is this a musical? It's surprising. And then I was like, well, I guess Katniss does sing in some of the
0: sequels. By the way, she sings that song, The Lullaby, when the girl dies, which is something that was written by Susan Collins. It became actually a hit on like, it it got played on the radio, which is crazy.
1: I mean, so I guess there is some grounding for it. And it's kind of nice jumping back and I guess seeing like how a folk song evolves that like Katniss is singing songs that people were singing in the past. It's weird. I liked it best in the third act. Okay. Which you don't usually feel about movies.
0: No, I liked it best in the third act. Okay that's interesting. I, I'm, I'm down for this. I, I'm down to like re-enter my response to the Hunger Games. But look, it all worked. It worked in a giant way. I mean, it grossed over $400 million Dollars. It's the first film not released by a big six studio, 20th century Fox, Walt Disney, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Columbia, or Universal, to gross over 400 million. People were ready for this movie and it was reviewed well. And people liked this movie. Like, this is like one of those movies where I feel like I I think it's on the vein or in the same world as Harry Potter. It is universally beloved. And I think it's because it's a more complicated theme. We've talked about this time and time again on the show. We are ready for those types of ideas. And whenever you have a good idea like this, you get the bad ideas. And that's when you get the divergence and the maze runners and all this other bullshit. And then we start to go, ugh, to all this. I think the reason why these movies work or the reason why this book worked is because it was different. And we're so afraid to take risks on things that are different that I just applaud it. Like we put a non-famous person in this role. We took a very dark movie. We Catered it to kids because they knew that the book had a giant kid audience. Um, and you made something that's actually a four quadrant picture that is dark and depressing. And like you said, it ends. This movie ends like Empire Strikes Back, you know, or or like The Godfather. These are big swings. And, and I, I applaud a lot of this movie. I don't think it's one of the best movies ever made, but I applaud the translation of it. Granted, we didn't get her enjoying food or talking about food. Uh, and maybe in a movie with two and a half hours, they could have figured out how to add one line in there about that. But Just um, have
1: her shoving her face. Just have her yeah. shoving food in her face.
0: That's all. Even I mean. if it was privately. Even if it was just privately.
1: Have her hide the food and eat it away from them. That tells us
0: character too. I like but that. But do you think they didn't do that because they had so many issues with her uh, being too full-bodied?
1: Oh, I hope not. I mean, I don't want that to be the case. Although I will yeah. say, like, if they were going to take issues with Jennifer Lawrence's creation of the character the physical creation of the character that like the costume and hair and makeup put together i hate her hair dye in this oh i I mean i know that katniss is supposed to be a brunette and like gary ross when everybody's freaking out on twitter about her casting like he said he had to give a quote about it he said i promise all the advent fans of the hunger games that we can easily deal with jennifer's hair color but i just think that dark brown hair color does not look right on her the shade of it doesn't look right or her that she has these big fat round curls that don't look very natural while she's like running in the
0: woods you know obviously as jennifer lawrence becomes a giant giant star you know she gets paid like five hundred thousand dollars to do the first movie and i think 20 million to do the last movie or something crazy um she did talk to viola davis on this Variety's actor on actor series and she said you know being in the hunger games was an awesome responsibility Those books were huge, and I knew the audience was children. And I remember the biggest conversation was, how much weight are you going to lose? Along with me being young and growing and not being able to be on a diet, I didn't know if I wanted all the girls who are going to dress up as Katniss to feel like they can't because they're not a certain weight. And I can't let that seep into my brain either. And I thought that was really interesting because, you know, we look at these superheroes and these bodies. I mean, I think that image of Scarlett Johansson in that, like, kind of pose that like battle pose remember that like when she drops from the ceiling right and everyone's like whoa right that is an unnatural body type and and i think jennifer lawrence dealt with all these toxic conversations around her body in the role she said in l she was like i don't want little girls to be like oh i want to look like katniss so i'm going to skip dinner that's something i was conscious about i was trying to get my body to look fit and strong not thin and underfed
1: and kind of to what you're saying this is a movie that comes out in 2012 I remember that movies at this time that started like, quote unquote, ass kicking heroines always had a nice lingering shot of their butt or like the way their uniform fit over their boobs. I'm thinking of the way like Scarlett Johansson had to endure getting shot as the Black Widow. I'm thinking about Salt. And there is not one single leering shot of that of Katniss, which I appreciate. And that shouldn't be something worth applause. But I think in 2012, it's actually worth applause. But I do have another quote. And this is just kind of stemming back to the book as well. I don't think she kills enough people. I think Katniss is capable of stone-cold murder, would actually be very fine stone-cold murdering people. And here, the only person that she's really responsible for dying is like a girl who gets stung by bees that she dropped on their head. She doesn't stab anybody. I feel like this Katniss would kill. I wish
0: she killed so you're saying she does kill the last guy I think that she does it in tandem you know she's got a well the dogs
1: finish him off it's like one of those things where she doesn't strike the final blow it feels like it kind of cheats just to make sure we can still like her right? and that he gives that whole speech anyways where he's like I'm dead anyway go ahead go on dead anyway
0: I always was right?
1: I didn't know that until now. How is that? Is that what they want? Huh? Huh? No! No, no, I can still do this. I can still do this. One more kill. It's the only thing I know how to do. Bring pride to my district. Which honestly is kind of gloomy and it may, I do like what we see of the people from the other districts who actually get to like survive enough to live. I think Isabel Furman is so great in this movie. It is kind of like the yeah. main one, Clove, who's like taunting and strange. Like she just comes in and she's like so electric and focused and cruel. She's fantastic. You know what? I had a thought watching this movie. This is not unrelated to Starship Troopers. In a way, it's like still the same critique of like a fascist society that doesn't value the lives of the young in it who are dying for the society. It's making that same critique, but the emotions are more real. And here, a lot of the people catch on. Although I do wonder if like some of like the District 1, District 2 careers, you know, the, the people like Cato, could Cato just step straight into Starship Troopers and be like, I'm fighting for the good guys. I'm fighting
0: for fame. I'm on the right side. Absolutely. I mean, he is perfect Starship Trooper material. But Amy, where do you fall? I mean, it feels to me like you like this more than I thought that you would. And I and I and this is why I love doing this podcast with you. You continually surprise me with where you fall on things. I mean, you definitely like the books.
1: I do. I do. I mean, this is one of those movies where, you know, 10 years after I saw it for the first time, I still feel like I know every single character's full name and that feels rare to me, right? Like everybody in this movie makes such an impression. When I watch the film, I see all of the directing quibbles. I see the lack of eating lamb stew. I I can understand that Gary Ross is like, okay, I'm shifting this from a POV book to like more of a third person omniscient movie. I'll capture her inner landscape by shaking the camera around like it's in the fucking dryer. I get it. I hate it. So I have all of these quibbles about it, but yet- to me, this is one of those movies where if it's on, I have a hard time turning it off. Well, and also, you know, that so many faces in here have also gotten to go up and have interesting careers. Even Josh Hutchinson being in Five Nights at Freddy, very, very, very strange movie that as soon as you start talking about the plot in daylight, you're like, what on earth was happening?
0: My friend reviewed Five Nights at Freddy like this. I wouldn't be surprised if everyone who was involved in making this movie has never seen a film.
1: I won't spoil anything, but when that Lady Cop came on, and the way that Lady Cop character was written and cast, I was like, what is happening? But I thought some of it was pretty good. But I bet it did not have pranks on the set, like the Hunger Games had pranks on the set.
0: A certain unnamed tribute. Um, Right before the scene, he walked over to Jack, who plays Marvel, and for lack of a better word, he farted in his face. And he just kind of sauntered over to me, just kind of like this. And then he just turns around and then... Oh, gross. Uh, You know, Amy, talking about this movie, I'm surprised at how complex it is. And and I like this conversation, but I want to go back to one of the things we touched on early on, which was Platoon. And I think when we were talking about Platoon, we're talking about this realization that Charlie Sheen has at the end. It's sort of his vision of seeing the new recruits come in and being someone who has done it. And I think it's kind of the thing that Hamich brings to this movie. Woody Harrelson, who we didn't really talk about, who is very good in this movie. But I think, you know, he brings this idea of like, I don't want to be connected to these people because they're just going to die. And I feel like that's kind of a very similar theme that you see at the end of Platoon. I, I love our conversation about that movie, but I also think it may be worth going back and kind of listening to Platoon as we think about this movie as well. So take a listen to us talking about Charlie Sheen's arc in that, as he becomes a Haymitch, uh, because he's more of a Haymitch than he is a Katniss.
1: You're kind of nailing, I think, exactly how audiences felt in 86, which was, in 1986, people thought, I know the Vietnam War. It was the war that was televised. People were watching the Vietnam War at night. But they weren't really watching Oliver Stone's war is what he felt like. You know, he was a kid a lot like Charlie Sheen. He got into Yale. He was the son of some pretty wealthy folks. He dropped out of Yale twice, actually. And the second time he dropped out of Yale, he joined the military and he felt like what he saw, the absolute chaos and carnage he saw, he was there about the same time as Charlie Sheen's character.
0: About 14 months, right?
1: Yeah, about 14 months. Was just never captured by the cameras because there weren't that many camera operators who were there in the jungle with them shooting war. They were usually back at the base where stuff was a lot calmer. Right. And so he was trying to tell the audiences of American 86, you think you know Vietnam. You actually have no idea what Vietnam was really like.
0: All right. Well, Amy, we've done it. And you know— this weekend, you said to me something I thought was really exciting. You said, you know, for our next movie, maybe there's something we can do that harkens back to election. I know that we're, uh, you know, an episode out away from election, but it's still on our minds. I, I put a, a thing up on my Instagram. I said, can you still have grown as a person, but still be petty or it's still like you know, have an issue with somebody. And 80% of people said, yeah, you can still fucking be petty, but have grown. So I like that idea that, you know, you can you can do both because you and I were disagreeing about that. Can you still be angry? <laughs> can, you know, um, but 80% of people think that, which means that 80% of people just are still angry <laughs> and they want to feel like they've also grown like me. But uh, you were talking about, and we were both talking about this last week, about why do we like this character of McAllister? And you said it in passing, but you're like, it's Ferris Bueller. I'm like, oh yeah, Ferris Bueller, of course. And then this weekend you texted, what if we did Ferris Bueller? And I was like, this is a great idea. We we had a little bit of a plan after this, but I think we can put it on hold to take a day off and take it <laughs> off with Ferris.
1: All right, buddy. Let's uh, put on our shades and go play hooky.
0: I love it. All right a big thank you to our producer Josh Richmond, our associate producer Jessica Cisneros, our engineer Casey Holford, and our executive producers Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapelo and our MVP Molly Reynolds, our theme song is by Michael Cassidy and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discordgg shear Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com/unspooled and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com.